0: Well, I can remember a conversation that I had with a fellow pastor something over 15 years ago. And in that conversation, he took something I said to its logical conclusion with this statement. If someone does not know Jesus... And what happens in this world in which we live does not make him depressed. Then either he's not paying attention or there's something wrong with his thinking and with his feeling. Now, there are two important parts to what my brother brought to my attention, what he said first. Those who do not know Jesus are more likely to be depressed. But in addition, the pressures of life in this fallen world affect everyone, whether people are inclined to pay attention and reflect or not. Now, another thing to keep in mind is Jesus does not always heal depression, either completely or all at once. But he does make it possible for his people to cope and to cope with the encouragement of one another. You know, sometimes people say to me, why do I have to go to church? It's God and Jesus and me. Well, no, we need each other. No one makes it alone and we can build each other up. Now, another truth to consider in our country today, especially post-COVID, I have heard that up to 50%, half of the people in this country either experience some despair or depression right now. I also believe very firmly, that everyone at some time in their life will go through a period of depression. For me, it happened in my junior year at WPI, and it was pretty intense. And it was even worse because I didn't know Jesus. So um, from today's story, we learn from the prophet Elijah um, about the dangers of spiritual warfare. I will direct you back to the story before this with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, some of us know that story quite well. It is this. The enemy of God and God's people is a very sore loser. And he seeks to take down those who are God's most devoted, and effective servants. Just prior to the story we heard read this morning, Elijah had called down fire from Israel's God. And then he destroyed all the prophets of the pagan god of thunder and rain, Baal. And then he prayed in this long drought Almost three and a half years that it affected Israel, God ended it when he sent a heavy rain, which is so ironic because this false God was supposed to be the God of rain, but the true God is the God of rain. So we just heard that when the wicked king Ahab told his more wicked wife Jezebel what had happened, she vowed to kill Elijah. And then we're told that he became aware of his, her intentions. And he went on foot, on foot, walking 70 miles south. And his exhaustion and his feeling of being alone in the midst, in the uh, midst of all of this evil caused him to pray that he would die are we surprised? We should not be. Just like my colleague said, if we're paying attention, this can happen to anybody, even God's best. So now let's dig deeper in God's word and see how God treated his beloved prophet. So again, this is First Kings 19. First of all, we have Jezebel's fury and Elijah's flight. Okay. Jezebel swears to kill Elijah. Looking at the details now, then Ahab told to Jezebel all Elijah had done and that he had slain all the prophets of Baal, which means Lord. So this is now connecting all that follows with what Elijah had done on Mount Carmel, which is in the chapter before this. And we're told then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, so will the gods do to me. And more also, if at this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. It's an outright threat. She strongly swears to get revenge on Elijah by doing to him what he did to her false so-called prophets. So, then we get to the action here. Elijah flees first to Beersheba and then to Mount Sinai. Then Elijah saw rose up and went on foot for his life and came to Beersheba in Judah and left his servant there. So he saw. You see, as his prophet, as God's prophet, he showed Elijah what Jezebel had planned for him. God does this for his special people. And then he walked 70 miles from Mount Carmel, which was on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, on a little bump more or less opposite the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to the southernmost town in Judica, Beersheba, the well of the sevenfold oath. And then he himself went in the wilderness a day's journey, then came and sat down under a thorn bush. That's the best way to translate it. And he asked that his soul would die. And he said, literally, too much now, Yahweh. Take my life. I am no better than my father's. Well, The southernmost part of Judah is a rocky wilderness with, at best, shallow soil. So these thorn bushes, they grow up. They're all scraggly. They don't give much shade. Light can go through them. Wind can go through them. At maximum, they grow to 10 feet in height. So here he is lying down under this scrawny, wretched bush, He's got very little shade, but then uh, um, there's more to it than this. He's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed after participating in this miraculous victory of Yahweh God over Baal. Okay, people, let's not just stop here. 2,700 years ago. What does this say to us and all of us alive today? Let us realize that even God's chosen servants who have been instruments of his victories can experience exhaustion and depression. No one is immune. We're told then he lay down and slept. Behold, an angel touched him. Rise up, eat. Then he looked. Behold, a disk of bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Then he ate and drank, and again he lay down. So God sent an angel to gently waken Elijah and show him some food and water that he, God, had provided for his beloved prophet. Elijah ate, Elijah drank, and he went back to sleep. And that in itself is a blessing. Then came again the angel of Yahweh and touched him a second time. Rise up, eat, for the journey is too much for you. Then he arose, ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and nights to the mountain of God, Horev. Okay. The angel of Yahweh, the angel, many people believe when it has the definite article in front of it, which happens many times in the Tanakh in the Torah, in the prophets, and the writings, that this one is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, there's no absolute proof of that. I will tell you that I am one of them, but, you know, I could be wrong, we could be wrong. But the point is, this is a messenger directly from God, and he says, the journey that Elijah would take... Again, get out a good Bible atlas in the back of your Bibles, 280 miles through rugged terrain with next to no food or water. It required supernatural strength and do the simple arithmetic. It was such rugged terrain that he could only average seven miles per day. It took him 40 days and 40 nights to go those 280 miles. Now to Mount Horeb. We saw this a few weeks ago. Horev means desert, and it's equal to Mount Sinai. It had both names. Sinai means thorny. This is where Yahweh gave his people the Ten Commandments and further instructions through Moses. And as I was pulling this all together, I couldn't help but think of how Moses and Elijah would appear with Jesus on another mountain. Look at Matthew 17. Now we get to the heart. The heart of the story. We've got this depressed prophet. What does God do for him? Well, Yahweh's word to Elijah is both a question and an answer. And then we have a little appendix from the Gospel of John, and we'll get to that before we finish. But he's glorified, the Son of God is glorified through his trouble on the cross. Are you starting to get the common theme? So first we have Elijah's despairing excuse, Yahweh's mighty wind and small whisper. So again, looking at it verse by verse, then he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged there. It means he spent the whole night there sleeping. Behold, the word of Yahweh to him. And literally he said, what to you here, Elijah? There is no verb doing that's implied, but it's basically, what are you doing here? Well, he'd been sent there by the angel for one thing. But his, his first word to his depressed prophet is in the form of a question. But I said it with the wrong tone of voice there. I believe it was in love and compassion. He is speaking to his faithful prophet in the midst of his depression The covenant Trinity God, Yahweh, speaks to those who are in depression. This is great hope. And then he, Elijah, goes into this long lament. I've been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of the armies, because the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Thy altars, they have broken down. And thy prophets, they have slain with the sword. And I, only I, remain. And they seek to take my life. I know, and I think most of us know, there's nothing worse than being lonely and feeling alone. This is a very long lament about his zeal for the true God in the midst of unfaithfulness and violence on every side. But his final complaint, I think, is really the depth of his heart. He's complaining that he is all alone. He's lonely and about to be killed. And then he, Yahweh, said, go forth, Stand on the mount before Yahweh. Now, seemingly ignoring Elijah's lament, or perhaps, I think more likely, redirecting it, Yahweh commands his prophet to go and stand before him on Mount Horeb, as Moses had done almost 600 years before this. Behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and powerful wind broke the stones of the mountain, but he was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but he was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but he was not in the fire. Wind, earth, fire, fire. Now, we would expect that the awesome, all-powerful God would be in these powerful phenomena. But he was not. Not. And after the fire, a small whisper voice. Small whisper. After the noise of a stone breaking wind and an earthquake, Yahweh speaks to his prophet, Quietly, in a small whisper. This is unexpected. And here's another application for us from this story. We must all realize that while God always provides what we need, it is not always with power, but often in an understated way. Let's not miss it when his answer comes to us, quiet and not all glamorous and amazing. And Yahweh's word is a threefold plan for Elijah. Then, as Elijah heard, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, to him a voice What do you hear, Elijah? (laughs) So there's a lot going on here. Yahweh repeats the very same question that he had said to Elijah when he had laid down to rest. Now that he has come outside the cave and he's up on the top of the mountain, he repeats his question. Okay. But he does it again in love and compassion. He's still speaking to his prophet in the midst of his depression. And again, I'll say it again. It's always true. Yahweh, the great covenant, Trinity God, he speaks to people in their depression. Now, Elijah, and I'm not going to repeat it again, gives the exact same long lament, word for word about his zeal in the midst of unfaithfulness and violence, again complaining he's lonely and about to be killed. His despair is repeating itself. And again, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be Elijah. I may be wrong, but he is still in his despair and depression Maybe he's thinking Yahweh didn't hear him. These empty pyrotechnics didn't help him one bit. And God knew that. Everybody knows that. So to make his point and to try to get an answer, he repeats himself verbatim. And then Yahweh said, go. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Again, if you got out a Bible map, you need to do this. It's just a bunch of names otherwise. He returned 425 miles north of where he was. And this time it didn't take 40 days and 40 nights, but it was a long hike. In fact, he was some 90 miles northwest of where he started at Carmel. This was a long trek to the capital of Syria. And... Having come anoint Kazael, which means one who is seeing God to be the king of Syria. And Yehu, in Hebrew, which means Yahweh is he. Yes. He is the only one. The covenant God is everything. Who is the son of Nimshi, which means rescued. And anoint him to be king of Israel. So the first thing The covenant God does is he gives his prophet a mission to anoint two kings. A God-given purpose for his life. To distract him from feeling alone and to let him know he's still God's chosen prophet and he still has work to do. And then Elisha, which means God is salvation... The son of Shaphat, which means judged, of Abel Mekola. Well, if we knew Hebrew... And I clicked on my Bible dictionary. What a name for a place. It means meadow of dancing. Now, sometimes people in depression don't need that much joy put on them. But God is giving them a clue. Even in the place name, you will anoint him to be prophet in your place. So now, he also gives to Elijah a protege who will eventually succeed him. So Elijah is now to mentor a companion. And all who have been given the privilege, and I've had this privilege a few times in my life, to be a mentor to someone, know that this is extremely fulfilling. So he's fulfilling a need of his prophet. And then he goes on and says, he escaping from the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And he escaping from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Imagine this, a prophet killing enemies of God. It's right. It makes sense. This is justice. What is happening here is after Elijah does his first two tasks, God's going to get to the heart of his problem. Elijah is very upset with the apostasy and the faithlessness and, and the idolatry of the people around him. And Yahweh says he will execute justice on the idolaters through the men he commanded Elijah to anoint. And here is something to also keep in mind, because it affects each and every one of us and all of us together. God often uses people to accomplish his plans. Why? To give his people the joy of working with him and for him that his will be done. And then bottom line in our story of Elijah, this brings it all together. He says, I have left in Israel. Namely, there is a remnant. There is a remnant of um, 7,000 men, 7,000, every knee which has not bowed to Baal and every mouth which has not kissed him. People, what he's saying, his last and greatest gift to his depressed prophet Elijah is that Elijah has now been told of 7,000 peers who share His devotion to God. What a pleasant surprise for Elijah. And if only we could be surprised to know that we are not that small of a minority in our world today. Overcoming depression requires mutual encouragement. So we put this all together, this last paragraph. In total, Yahweh spoke a threefold word to help Elijah deal with his depression. First of all, he gives him a purpose for his life. Secondly, a protege to mentor. And thirdly, peers to support his mission of love for his God. Yahweh speaks to those in depression, and this got Elijah back on his feet. Now let's go forward to our excerpt from the Gospel of John. What happens is Jesus is expressing that he knows he has a troubled soul because he must bear the sins Of all people, but this troubled soul, this suffering he's about to go through, will result in glory for his Father. So let's take it word for word. First, we get a rhetorical question from him. He's talking to his disciples, the 11, the 12, actually, it was before the Last Supper. Now my soul has been troubled, and what may I say? You see, Jesus faced the cross as both God and man. And his human soul was troubled. And troubled, it had been troubled for some time as the time was getting closer and closer. So he goes on. What may I say? Should I say, Father, you must save me from this hour? No, but for this reason, I have come to this hour. He will follow the eternal plan of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity from the very beginning in spite of his trepidation. And he will obey without any further questioning. And then here's the heart of his prayer. Here's the real prayer. Father, thou must glorify thy name. Then came a voice from heaven. I have both glorified it, past tense, and will again glorify it, future tense. So here's the father's promise. Jesus' his father says he has been glorifying his name through his son all of Jesus' life, all the way up until now, and he will continue to glorify it. He will continue to glorify it even in the cross. So here's something else. And here's a promise we need to hold on to because so so often we just despair, okay? Let us realize that what seems to be defeat for those obeying God is always turned, always turned to God's glory in the end. And and now for us, what does it mean for us? We must realize that in obeying Jesus' command to take up our cross with him, God will also be glorified in our sufferings, even to the point of death for him. And I thought... This is no coincidence how appropriate that God directed me to preach from this passage on the day of prayer for the voice of the martyrs. So let us all live by the truth that was taught and modeled by Jesus, that it is God's will that his people share in his son's sufferings in order to share in his glory. Philippians 3, I put it on the front of our bulletin every Sunday, read it and think about it. And then Paul mentioned it for himself. God glorifies those willing to even die for him, not just his son, but those who are in his son. And When it comes to this issue of suffering in Elijah, it is to be expected by everyone. Don't be surprised when it happens. So let me just sum up the story, and you've already heard the implications, but let's see it again. When Elijah sees that Jezebel swears to kill him, he flees to Mount Horeb, where he collapses in exhaustion. Then when Yahweh questions him, he declares his despair of being alone in his devotion to the covenant God. But God gives him work to do for him and declares Elijah has 7,000 like-minded men. He's not alone. We're never alone. Not only is God always with us, but we have more brothers and sisters in Christ than we realize. And let's seek them out and let's comfort one another. And Yahweh speaks to those in their depression. I think that's the heart of this story. And Let us never forget that.